0: O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Now, I'm not going to call this divine intervention, but perhaps serendipity, because today I find myself preaching on these beloved words of Paul on the very same weekend that I bought my own wedding dress. Maybe it's further proof that God has a sense of humor. And I'm not the only one I know who's getting married. In fact, my own brother is going to be married in a few months, and many of my good friends have gotten married recently as well. My life has felt like a swirl of white dresses and bouquets and rented tuxedos and unity candles. And along with all of these rituals and wedding paraphernalia, I have been surprised to see just how many of my friends have used this passage from 1 Corinthians as a reading at their wedding ceremonies. I wonder whether they actually know the origin of the passage. However, taking a step back, is it really that surprising that folks would want to have these words read at their weddings? I don't think so. The lyricism of Paul's words strike a chord with us. Simplicity and brevity are not the first words that come to mind for me when I think about Paul's writing style. Often I think he comes across as dense and opaque. Here, however, Paul's words are poetic. As Carol Weston so beautifully read, there's an ease to the cadence of these sentences. And virtually everyone loves these words. And almost everyone assumes that they know what they mean. These are words that deeply resonate with us as profoundly true, expressed with an elegant simplicity. And doesn't Paul describe a kind of love that we all aspire to share with one another? After becoming so familiar with these words during times of delight and gladness, how unexpected it is to recognize that the setting of this passage is quite different from the one that we usually place it in. Paul did not write these words in celebration or for a joyous occasion, but instead he wrote them in a time of turmoil for a community that has been ripped at the seams. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth that has been torn apart by internal conflict. As we learned last week, certain church members have been boasting of their spiritual superiority. They've been sizing themselves up against one another to see who has greater spiritual gifts. Paul here is not offering some musings about the nature of love or a pious reflection on the way that things ought to be. Rather, it is his call to the Corinthians to account for their behavior. I can imagine the rough draft of Paul's letter going something like this. Wait, wait, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, time out here. There are many gifts. Some of you have the gift of wisdom. Some of you have the gift of knowledge. And those folks over there have the gift of faith. Everyone has a gift. And everyone is needed. It is like we are all members of the same body, the body of Christ. Everyone has a valuable gift to contribute to the life of this community. Each person is essential for the good of the whole. No gift is better than the others because they all come from the same source. They are all manifestations of the Spirit of God. Paul goes on to explain that one cannot stake too much on one's unique spiritual gift. Whether it be one's vast knowledge or unwavering faith or sage advice, all of these gifts fade. There's only one gift, one gift from the Spirit of God that everyone has been given, and that is the gift of love. And that love has no end or limit because it is not an attribute of God, but it is the very essence of God. We are promised the gift of love because God doesn't want to withhold God's own self from us. And just as God gives the gift of love, God also calls us to reflect upon how to use and share that love. I would go so far as to say that the life of community depends on love for its very existence. Whether it be a community of two and a marriage, or the community of many and a church. Marriage can survive if one partner has more life experience or has a higher IQ than the other. However, a marriage will not last if only one partner has love for the other. And a church can carry on when some members are particularly generous in their charitable giving, and others have a particularly strong sense of faith, The church, however, cannot survive and certainly cannot fill its calling if only a few members share the gift of love. God promises the gift of love to all, but also requires all of us to share that love. Now listen carefully again to the words of Paul. Love is patient and kind. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul so eloquently describes the gift of love at length without ever describing it as an emotion or a feeling. And I don't think that was an oversight on his part. Instead, Paul uses action words to characterize love. He expresses it as a way of being. Patience. Kindness. Hope. Endurance. The love of which Paul speaks is not a mushy one-liner from a Hallmark card or a lyric about a crush from a pop song. This is another kind of love story. The love of which Paul speaks is a particular kind of love. It's a self-giving one that takes commitment, maturity, and good old-fashioned hard work. Think about the vows that a couple exchanges at their wedding ceremony. The question being asked of the couple is not, do you love one another? It's, will you love one another? It's not about predicting how we will feel towards the other, because we don't have control over that. What we can do, what we do have control over, is how we act towards one another. The question becomes not, What does love feel like? But what does love look like? Love is not what we possess on the inside, but it's what we share with the outside. Love is patient and kind. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't know about you, but these words sound like a very tall order to me. Even on my best day, even on my most generous and giving day, I know that my attempts to live up to this definition will be clumsy at best. I'm always going to fall short. And quite honestly, I'm not sure if it's wise for me to try. It's unsustainable to attempt to embody all of these qualities all of the time for all people. I know so many relationships that have reached a breaking point precisely because one or another person has tried too hard to endure all things, believe all things, hope all things. I think this is a particularly important reminder here in the high-achieving environment of Harvard. A sense of relief comes to me, however, with the realization that the perfect love that Paul describes here is not human love. It's God's love. Paul's letter shows us that God's perfect love is made real by Christ. It's a Christ-filled love. Someone once offered this way to me to think about it. What happens if we try substituting the name of Jesus for love in this passage? Listen to how it sounds. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not jealous or boastful. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices at right. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Now that substitution feels quite different The words transform from an infeasible task to an affirmation of faith. And there's a strange comfort in knowing that this kind of love is so clearly beyond us. We cannot claim it as our own, because it is a gift that can only come from the one whose very essence is love. So the next time I hear these words of Paul at a wedding, I hope to hear Paul's lyric prose not as amusing about love or a pious reflection on the way things ought to be, but rather as a call. God, the source of perfect love, calls us to share that love, however imperfectly, with a hurting and needful world. Amen.